it's Caitlin. This is the last Simplify solo episode that you'll get for a while. And actually, it's the last episode of the year. Ben will be back in the new year, so stay tuned for that. This place just isn't the same without him. He is the messy perfectionist to my procrastinator perfectionist. What do I mean by that? Yeah. Okay, let me back up for just a second and I'll explain. So if you're alive and breathing, you probably know a perfectionist. Or maybe you are one. But do you know what kind of perfectionist you might be? And had it even occurred to you that there might be types and that knowing your own type and the type of the people around you could help you unleash that perfectionism as a superpower rather than some debilitating weakness? Well, if you are curious about any of this, then this episode is going to knock your socks off. Today's guest is Catherine Morgan Schaffler. She's a psychotherapist, a writer, and a speaker, and she's former on-site therapist at Google. And her book just out this year is called The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control. Her work's all about understanding perfectionism for what it really is. A yearning, not for some ideal, but for a sense of wholeness, which is kind of beautiful. She's identified in all of her work with perfectionists, five different types of perfectionist, which we will talk about. She tells us how to use your perfectionism to your advantage and how to tell whether the ways that you might be letting your perfectionism drive might be adaptive or maladaptive. There's a lot more, but let's do this. Let's just dive into the interview and I will meet you back here in the bookend. So here's my talk with Catherine Morgan Schaffler. I hope you really like it. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for joining me today. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I like to ask people to introduce themselves the way that they like to be introduced. We contain multitudes, and you certainly do. You've already done quite a lot in your life. So could you please introduce yourself the way that you like to be introduced? Oh, Caitlin, I love this already. Okay. So my name's Catherine Morgan Schaffler. I am a psychotherapist, and I just wrote a book this year called The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. I like to think of the intention behind all of those things as this, which is a lot of people suffer. Everyone suffers, but not everyone heals. And I would like to spend my life trying to bridge that gap. I love it. Everyone (laughs) suffers, but not everyone heals. Beautiful. So a big chunk of your work has been dedicated to perfectionism. And how did you get interested in this topic? I mean, they always say all research is me-search. Is that true here too? Yeah, it's true with a capital T. So I got interested in this because I've worked in a lot of different clinical settings. I used to work on site at Google here in New York City, where I'm based. I worked at a rehab in Brooklyn. I ran a private practice on Wall Street. I worked in residential treatment with really young kids in Los Angeles who were neglected and abused and became wards of the state, meaning they were taken out of both their family of origins, family, and foster care because they continued tragically to encounter abuse and trauma. And in all of those different contexts, with all of those different demographics, perfectionism existed in each of those contexts in ways that were not reflected in the current research. And so I started thinking, like, what is going on here? What is the tie that binds? Because I was noticing patterns and the patterns didn't have a common thread. I was looking for a common thread for many years. And then I realized it was perfectionism 
and that what we know about perfectionism, to say that we're in the infancy of our understanding of this construct is a severe understatement. And it's agreed in the research world that we're just starting to understand what perfectionism even is, how it affects us, the ways it manifests. It's so kaleidoscopic and I just had to dive deep, deep, deep in. And that is what the Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control is. It's like a containment area for all this stuff I discovered and questions I still had. Wow. Okay. So you say that we're in the infancy of our understanding of perfectionism. Then what do people in your experience, what do they usually mean when they say, I'm a perfectionist, or they use it accusatorily, you're a perfectionist, versus what have you been finding it actually means? Great question. So to answer that question, I have to answer it in parts because there are so many layers to that question and layers to the answer. I think we have this conditioned understanding of what perfectionism is, and that's really a behaviorally based understanding, meaning I am preppy, I am rigid, I am not collaborative, I need to loosen up or lighten up in some way. It's kind of what we've been taught perfectionism is. When people say, I'm such a perfectionist, they're tapping in to a more intuitive and from my perspective, accurate definition. And I define perfectionism and perfectionists as you know, it's a unique cognitive capacity. We are the only species in the world that can see the reality laid down at our feet and also imagine a reality which is new and improved in some ways. And the converse too, we can imagine a worse reality. And perfectionists are people who see that better reality and they feel an active compulsion to try to bridge the gap. And if you do that, more often than not, you can call yourself a perfectionist, right? So when people say, I'm a perfectionist, we think what they mean is, I want things to be perfect all the time. I want the weather to be perfect. I want myself to look perfect. I want people around me to act perfectly. And I want my day to run perfectly. And that's such an oversimplification of what it is. That's not what perfectionists want. That's not what anybody I know wants. What perfectionists are really after is a sense of wholeness, not flawlessness. When I hear people describe perfect moments in my practice, they are not describing flawlessness. They are describing moments in which they felt connected to their wholeness and the present moment. And when I hear people describe moments of real acute anxiety and fragmentation, they're describing moments that they thought would be perfect, but weren't, right? I got the promotion. This person, you know, proposed or everything about this house was what I said I wanted. And then I got it and I felt broken in some way. And so they're describing exterior perfection amidst an interior sense of fragmentation. So it's really the opposite of what we think in some ways. Hmm. And there's nothing more there's nothing more unsettling to people, I think, than the that disjunct between expected reality and actually perceived reality. It's so distressing to us. So distressing. And you know, that's what the whole book is really about. I mean, it's written in the framework of perfectionism, 
it's really about like, what do you want as a human being? Just like back to basics, what do you want? And then why do you want that thing? Because so much of what we want is what we think we're supposed to want, particularly as women. And then when we get it, we meet exactly what you just described. That sense of like, wait a minute, that internal collapse of this was not what I signed up for. What just happened? What is happening? What am I going to do about this? And the tricky thing about those moments are that they're usually private and invisible. And particularly in my practice, I've worked with so many high-functioning people, meaning their sense of depression or anxiety is the clinical way to put it. But, you know, just that wandering from true self, you can't tell that that's happening. They're never gonna, you know, not show up for work for four days. They're not gonna forget to pick up their kids. They're not going to look disheveled, right? They're extremely high functioning people. And that is when I think the damage gets compounded because you're like, but I'm fine. But you know, you're not fine. Mm. Intimately familiar with this. Yes. I want to get into what healthy perfectionism versus unhealthy is. But before we do that, I think a really interesting part of your book, which I'm sure you've touched on eight zillion times in podcast interviews, and I know how tiring it is for authors after a while to talk about the same things, but you have this five types of perfectionists, which is kind of surprising. I I thought five, there are five types, that many. Would you take us through those types? I would love to. So there's a quiz on my website, katherinemorganchaffler.com and on perfectionistguide.com. You can take the quiz and, you know, we're talking about a one minute online quiz, not empirically validated (laughs) info here. But anyway, the five types are the classic perfectionists. So this is what we most think of when we think of perfectionists. These types all have pros and cons because perfectionism, you know, has its benefits and liabilities. Classic perfectionists are extremely reliable, predictable. They do what they say they're going to do in the way they said they would do it when they said they would do it. On the con side, classic perfectionists are people who subscribe to the notion of like, if you want something done well, do it yourself. So this style of engagement doesn't necessarily lend itself to collaboration. And classic perfectionists can be taken for granted a lot because everyone kind of knows that they're going to do what they sign up for. And so this style can have interpersonal difficulties for those reasons. Another type is the procrastinator perfectionist. And this type of perfectionist wants the conditions to be perfect before they start. I think we are all familiar with this. On the pros side, this type is so thoughtful. They can see every scenario from a 360 degree angle. They are really great at preparing. On the con side, their preparative measures can spill past the point of diminishing returns. And it's like they never actually execute on the thing that they want to do, right? So their procrastination turns into a real paralysis when they're not managing this type of perfectionism. The counterpoint to the procrastinator perfectionist is the messy perfectionist. And messy perfectionists are in love with starting. They're just what I call start happy. They can start a million things in this incredible way where they don't even feel anxiety in the beginning. But 
messy perfectionists struggle in the middle of the process when the middle of the process is inevitably not as perfect feeling for them as the beginning. So this is when you hit the tedium of like, oh, I need to file this license for my company. It's boring. I don't know how Mm. to do it. This Mm -hmm. isn't fun, you know. (laughs) Or you get slightly lost and have to kind of pivot. Yeah, or some cracks begin to show. Perfectionism can show up in a lot of different contexts. So we think about it in achievement-based contexts like work, but it can show up interpersonally too, like messy perfectionists in dating, for example, love the first date, love the second date, love the third date, the fourth date hits. And it's like, this person is doing so loud. (laughs) Like they begin to see lots of flaws and that freaks them out. And then they abandon ship if they're not managing their perfectionism well. Um, Intense perfectionists want the end of the process to be perfect. So these are people who are focused on the outcome. And the pros of this type are that they have razor sharp focus. They will get it done. The cons are that they will get it done and focus on the outcome so much that sometimes they neglect their own well-being and the well-being of people around them. You know, the means don't justify the ends, but they do for an intense perfectionist not managing their perfectionism. And then lastly, there's the Parisian perfectionist. And this type of perfectionism is really interesting because it manifests interpersonally. So this is about wanting to be, you know, on a superficial level, the best way to explain it is wanting to be perfectly liked, wanting to perfectly like others, but it's more about perfect ideal connection. Every perfectionist is seeking an ideal. Parisian perfectionists are seeking ideal connection. So they want to be perfectly loved, understood, not just with each other, but also themselves. I see this a lot in commercial wellness where women in particular really become obsessive about perfectly loving themselves to the point where if there's a little bit of criticism and static in your mind, as there will be, it's like, oh, I'm not doing healing right. I'm messing up. I'm not doing it right. I'm not healthy. And it's like, that's not true. And so those are the five types as I see them in kind of like a splashy headline way. Yeah, great. I hope that people who are listening go and take the quiz. I'm kind of curious. I'm thinking about being in relationship to a perfectionist and not necessarily a romantic relationship, but also that I'm also thinking about like a managerial relationship, for example. All of these perfectionistic types are different, but is there a way that you can accommodate isn't really the right word, but how do you help a perfectionist when you're noticing their perfectionism is taking control? How do you help them ease up a little bit? Like how could I, for example, help someone who was reporting into me and I saw that person's perfectionism beginning to tweak out? Yes. It's such a great question again. So part of why I really enjoyed identifying the different five types of perfectionists are because The purpose of those is to understand where you need help and where you can give help to others. So if you're a manager and you're noticing someone on your team's really procrastinating because they want something to be perfect, understand that's where they need help. We think that where we encounter difficulty is what we need to change. I like to reframe that as where you encounter difficulty is maybe part of who you are. We all have pain points in our life. And I think it's a much smarter strategy to focus on your strengths 
and seek help with your weaknesses. Instead of doing this thing that again, commercial wellness kind of is teaching us we should do, which is to churn our all of our weaknesses into strengths also. So we could just be strong and good at everything. Like, good luck with that. You're a human being. You're always going to have limitations. You are always going to have struggles, particularly if you're someone who's interested in growing and developing. A mastery of something is going to make you curious about other things. Especially if you're a perfectionist, your work is never going to feel done. And that's a good thing. That is a quality of ambition. If you're an ambitious person, there's always more work ahead of you than behind you. That's what makes you ambitious. And so to get back to your question, if you're a manager and you notice someone is procrastinating on a task, find someone who's a messy perfectionist, who that procrastinator perfectionist can borrow all of their energy and the messy perfectionist can come in and effortlessly help them get stuff going Instead of trying to figure out, how can I get this procrastinated perfectionist who's experiencing a ton of anxiety to send this product out into you know market testing or something? Just like maybe do it with them or do it for them and trust in the bigger picture of things that once this thing gets going, procrastinated perfectionist is going to carry it through. Oh, I love that. I love that as like a prescription. I love connection as a prescription. Connect them with someone else who can help them get through their own specific block. I think that's really nice. Yeah. It's one of the most powerful reframes that I've ever learned is that the answer to a lot of our questions is not a what, it's a who. Oh, (laughs) that really touched my heart somehow. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. Well, maybe, I mean, I think it touches our heart because it's true. It's like, you know, we're so task oriented and like, what am I doing wrong? And what do I need to do next? And do, do, do. And it's like, who can I connect with? You know, healing is not an information issue. This is really making me think about so much of the dialogue that you see on social media. And in this world of commercial wellness, we talk about perfectionism, like it's something unnatural or exclusively bad. But You deliberately say in the book, and you've implied in many different parts of this conversation already, that perfectionism can be positive. Could you take us through the differences between what those categories look like in real life? What does it look like to use your perfectionism to your advantage versus your disadvantage? Absolutely. And I would go so far as to say perfectionism cannot only be positive, it is inherently positive, and it can have negative, really destructive implications if you let it get out of control and don't put boundaries around it. So to talk about this sort of positive aspect of perfectionism, that looks like if a perfectionist took it upon themselves to address world hunger and 50% of the world were starving and that perfectionist, you know, 10 years later had worked so effectively that now only 2% of the world was encountering starvation, the perfectionist wouldn't care. The perfectionist would say, I'm going to work as hard to bridge that 2% gap as I did when I had achieved nothing. And that's a beautiful thing. What's not beautiful and what is not healthy is when you bridge that gap at the expense of your well-being and the well-being of people around you. So there are two guiding questions that you want to ask yourself to understand whether your perfectionism is being expressed in adaptive healthy ways or maladaptive unhealthy ways. And those questions are, why are you striving? 
And if you're striving because you believe that reaching your goals is going to make you feel a certain way or grant you entrance into, you know, a proverbial club, the smart people club, the hot people club, the I don't know what club, then that's unhealthy, right? So if you're striving purely for outcome and disregarding the process and how you feel in the process, that is not healthy because what you will do is you will strive and strive and strive and strive. And research shows that when maladaptive perfectionists get what they want, when they even exceed their goals, they are more unhappy than when they were pursuing their goals in the first place. And the reason for that is because there are no substitutes for self-worth. This idea that like, even without this title, even without these accolades, even without, you know, this body that I think is better, I still deserve all the stuff that I would deserve if I were the most accomplished version of myself, right? And so the first question is, why are you striving? The second question is, how are you striving? Are you striving in a way that is exploiting or hurting people around you? Or are you striving in a way that is exploiting or hurting yourself? And if the answer to either of those questions is yes, you're not in a healthy place. I get it. Um, Another thing that I noticed in the book is this connection between perfectionism and self-punishment. You talk really eloquently about the difference between self-punishment and discipline, which I think sometimes is kind of a difficult needle to thread. It's hard to know sometimes which one you're operating under. Could you just speak a little bit about perfectionism or perfectionists and their sort of attachment to self-punishment? versus what it looks like to be a perfectionist and have discipline? Yes, thank you for bringing that up. So if I could wave a magic wand and get every single person to understand one thing, it would be that punishment does not work. And not only does it not work, it makes everything worse. And I think that is the go-to mode that perfectionists turn to to kind of whip themselves into shape is punishment through What I've seen most commonly is negative self-talk. It doesn't look so literal. It doesn't look like saying, God, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I did that. It looks like this kind of sick pep talk with yourself where you're saying something to the effect of like, let's say you're trying to exercise every morning and you've had what you perceive to be a lot of false starts and you just don't have your shit together in your opinion. You might say things to yourself like, okay, you have been sloppy and disorganized. You're going to get it together tomorrow. Tomorrow is the day. If you don't get it together, what are you doing? Da, 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 da. And it's sort of like this negatively infused motivation, right? And the question you want to ask yourself to determine whether you're punishing yourself or whether you're engaging in discipline or personal accountability or rehabilitation, punishments are designed to create more pain. So ask yourself, am I doing this to create more pain for myself? Also a good way to check in to see if you're punishing others, which is also not good, right? So a lot of people will punish others by like the silent treatment, right? And a punishment is anything that you withhold that you know that you need or anything that you do that you know is going to hurt you, right? So if someone's trying to lose weight, let's say, And they know that 
it is going to hurt them to skip a meal, but they do that anyway because they were so bad this morning. And so now they need to punish themselves, right? Or, you know, there are so many iterations of this. Yeah, there are. I mean, I was just thinking back to my history with over-exercising. That was absolutely a way to punish myself. I wanted to have a better body. I wanted to lose weight. And I would force myself five or six days a week in the morning to go to the gym, even when I didn't want to. And I I figured out that I was creating pain for myself. And I don't do that anymore. But I think a lot of people, a lot of people under the guise of discipline and doing something good for themselves, that's like their workaround to destroy themselves more, unfortunately. Right, right. And punishment seeks to lay pain on whatever's already there. And the grand plan is, I'm going to heal myself and get my goal by hurting myself. And that's not an effective strategy. Discipline seeks to create structure and teach someone how to rise to the occasion by creating certain time blocks or certain support networks, which it is more likely that that person will achieve their goals, whatever those goals are. Also, good discipline teaches someone what to do next time they hit a similar difficulty, right? And so what that might look like for a child, let's say, is a child took a plate and threw it on the ground and broke it. A punishment is go stand in the corner and sit there for five minutes. That's supposed to make the child more miserable, upset, They know they did something wrong. They don't know what it was, why it was, or what to do next time they have an impulse to pick up a plate and smash on the ground. Discipline looks like saying, it's not acceptable to pick up a plate and throw it on the ground. This is why. Next time that you feel or think this, here's a different thing to do other than pick up the plate and smash it on the ground. Here are some words to use. Here are some like, you know, body movements you can engage in. And that's really key because people will be like, oh, punishments do work. That kid doesn't throw the plate on the ground anymore if you hit them or if you put them in the corner. No, punishments teach people how to avoid the source of the punishment. They don't teach people what the actual parameters of what you're trying to teach the values and those things are. So that kid is not going to throw a plate when their parents are in the room, right? But they'll do it everywhere else. So When you feel the impulse to punish yourself, instead of trying to simply repress that impulse and say, don't punish myself, don't punish myself, it's much easier to give yourself a road of what to do instead. And what to do instead is practice self-compassion. Now, there's something in me that recoils when I hear that word because it feels like emotional petting. We hear self-compassion and we think we're letting ourselves off the hook or that it's just being really polite to ourselves, or that it's not taking accountability. And self-compassion is none of those things. Self-compassion is the most effective strategy you will ever learn if you want to heal, and it is not an optional strategy. If you want to heal and grow, you must learn how to be compassionate with yourself. And what that means is that you understand that when you feel good, you are more likely to make better, braver, bolder decisions. And when you feel bad, you're more likely to contract instead of expand. And you're more likely to make bad decisions. Does that make sense? Absolutely. 
It makes me think of the as if principle. It was a book that Richard Wiseman wrote, but it's based on William James's work. This whole idea, like, if you smile, you will feel happier rather than we smile because we feel happy. If we also, if we smile, if we start acting into the reality of whatever we want to have happen, we're more likely to be able to attain it. Yeah. And if you say to yourself after you've made a huge mistake, you know, that was hard. You're in a lot of pain and you don't deserve to be in pain. You deserve to feel goodness and lightness and connection. What do you need right now to feel those things? That is a self-compassionate response as opposed to a punitive response, which is there you go again. When are you going to get your shit together? Come on, this is your life. You got to do it. You got to take this more seriously. And we try to like ramp ourselves up with pain and it doesn't work because that doesn't generate any sense of A, acknowledgement that we're in pain. You need acknowledgement to move forward through your problems. And it doesn't, it doesn't make you feel good, <laughs> which we think feeling good is going to be indulgent or superfluous or hedonic. It's none of those things. Feeling good makes us feel strong. If you think about the times you've been able to be most generous in your life, most giving, most forgiving, all of those things, it's because you feel a sense of strength within you. Yeah. Catherine, if you could rebrand perfectionists in just a couple of sentences, how do you wish you could just rebrand the idea of a perfectionist? It's the energy that makes the world go round is this unending pursuit of how can we become and be more whole? How can we honor the wholeness that we already have inside of us and animate it in the world such that it is felt and seen and enacted on a daily basis? I think it's a beautiful thing. I love the energy of the perfectionist. I love people who say, I am not going to be able to complete this thing but it is still worthy of a lifetime of pursuit, whatever that value is, you know? And we think that's a bad thing because we think that means, well, you're never taking pleasure. You're never satisfied. It's like, no, you're satisfied. And also two things can be true. And you're also want more. It is okay to want more. It's okay, especially for women to want more and not just okay. It's important and essential Oh, I wish we had gotten to a little more talking about feminism and perfectionism, but maybe some other time. I'm aware that uh, this is this is the end of our time together. Um, I was just wondering one last thing. Have you read anything lately that you really loved and you'd recommend? Oh, good question. There are two books this year that have just spun me into a tailspin and changed my life in really meaningful ways. And those are Laura McCowan's Push Off From Here. It's a book about sobriety, but I don't happen to be sober, but I love her work because it touches on such universe, like the curriculum of how to become sober is the curriculum of how to be a human being. <laughs> so I think it's useful for anyone. And Jason Pfeiffer, who's the editor-in-chief at Entrepreneur Magazine, wrote a book called Build for Tomorrow. And that book reframes change through a lens of gain instead of loss. Like we are all so reluctant to change because we think about how our lives, what we're going to lose. 
And this book is a total reframe and an invitation to think about what could you win? What could you be more of? What could feel like more to you? Love it. All right. Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been such a pleasure. This has been so much fun. I hope we get to connect again soon. Me too. Thanks. All right. And I'm back. We're back. You're back. You're here with me. Awesome. I'm really glad you stayed. So as a recap, the types of perfectionists are the classic perfectionist, the procrastinator, which is a person who can really get paralyzed about starting because they want it to be perfect. I really identify with this one, actually. There's the messy perfectionist, who are people who kind of thrive at starting and just getting in there. There's the intense perfectionist, who are really the finishers of the world. They're super focused on outcomes. And then there's this very mysterious type called the Parisian perfectionist, which is a person who's seeking for perfect connection, as Catherine says. Do you identify with any of these? I mean, clearly I do. And I think, as I said earlier, I'm more of a procrastinator perfectionist and Ben's more of a messy perfectionist, which is why we've always been a pretty good team. What I'm really taking away from this talk, in addition to, you know, knowing what my perfectionist type is, is that punishment does not work. It doesn't. It isn't a great strategy for getting where you want to go. Catherine defines punishment as anything that you withhold that you know that you need or anything that you do that you know is going to hurt you. It's not discipline. It's not noble. It's punishment. Look, we've all been there. We've been self-punishing in one way or another. So next time you notice that impulse in you rising, maybe you can try a little self-compassion instead. Not a bad New Year's resolution if you're the kind of person who does those. Okay, so I also want to recommend a book. This is the bookend where we end with books. And here it is. It's called Living the 80-20 Way, and it's by Richard Koch. So the 80-20 principle, if you haven't heard of it, is this economic idea that the vast majority of results come from a pretty small proportion of effort. You know, 20% of the effort gleans 80% of the results. So this book shows you how to apply that to your personal life. It's a guidebook that most people who identify as a perfectionist are likely to need, you know, less effort. That's a good thing. I'd say that the book is for anybody who feels overwhelmed or exhausted by their own schedule or anybody who needs permission to do less and figure out what's really important to them along the way. Okay, and that's it for 2023, I think. Thank you for this year together. It's been a pleasure bringing you Simplify as always. I feel so lucky to be doing this for the sixth year in a row now. Wow. All right. And you know what I'd love to know? Which episode spoke to you this year? Or in general, even if you have an episode that you love that was not from this year, which one has stuck out for you? What have you used? What's been helpful? I'd love to hear it. So email me. You can do that at podcast at Blinkist.com. I always love to hear from you. Uh, Simplify is brought to you by Blinkist. It's made by us here at Blinkist HQ. If you would like to try Blinkist free for 14 days, you can go to Blinkist.com slash friends and enter the code perfection. All right. Simplify is produced by me, Caitlin Schiller, Benjamin Stoller, Maria Levitschik, and Stefano Badia here in Berlin, Germany. Wishing you a new year with just enough of everything. So until 2024, checking out. <laughs>